Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I've decided to do a new podcast. This one will be called Brown People, a podcast where I speak to politicians, pundits, mothers and thinkers about discovering the stories of people of colour. I'll be your host as we dive into the lives of thoughtful individuals who have maybe courted controversy but have definitely lived a life worth talking about. We'll be talking about the struggles, the triumphs and everything in between as we hear the experiences of people from all over the globe. We'll be getting to the root of what drives them, how they see the world and how the world sees them and how they've overcome the obstacles that life has thrown in their way. This is a podcast that will be an exploration and a conversation. So join us as we shine a light on the stories, struggles and we look at the lives of people of colour. Please subscribe to it today whether you're a brown person or not. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. This recording of the episode Mid-Atlantic took place before the arrest of Peter Morell, the husband of Nicola Sturgeon, the former Scottish First Minister. Following his arrest as part of an investigation into the Scottish National Party's finances, Sturgeon pledged her full cooperation with the police. She has acknowledged the difficulty in recent days and her inability to comment on the investigation into the £600,000 earmarked for an independence campaign. Sturgeon also requested that journalists respect her neighbour's privacy and confirmed that she had not been questioned by the police. Morell has subsequently been released without charge pending further investigation. Hello and welcome. My name is Roy Brown. This is Mid-Atlantic and today we're looking at news much closer to home. I am back in the UK from my sojourn in California. I'm in Birmingham, which is a few hundred miles south of the country which we're going to be focusing on today. That country is Scotland. And Scotland has a new first minister. 
His name is Hamza Youssef. He was born in Glasgow in 1985 to Pakistani immigrants. He joined the SNP in 2005 and has worked as a parliamentary assistant to Bashar Ahmed, Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon before being elected to parliament in 2011. Youssef won the 2023 SNP elect- leadership election and was officially appointed as first minister on the 29th of March, becoming the youngest first Scottish Asian and Muslim to serve in office. Throughout his career, Youssef has been a vocal advocate for social justice, equality and human rights. And to explain his rise to power and the current state of Scottish politics, we have Leslie Riddock, who's one of Scotland's best-known commentators and broadcasters. She grew up in, in Belfast and she is somewhat of a expert when it comes to talking about Scotland and Scottish politics. She's been all over UK media. Leslie, welcome to Mid-Atlantic. How are you today? Fine, actually. Yes, it's sunny here in Scotland, which is a bit of a turn up. So spring's on the way. We've got this very complicated leadership election over and it feels like a new year has just begun. How are things with you? Ah, you know what? Not so bad. I've been back in, in Blighty now for just about a week. So my jet lag is just about done. Mm. Thank you for asking. National Secretary of the SNP, I have been given the results of the party leader election 2023. These are as follows. The final number of eligible members was 72,169. The first preference votes are as follows. Ash Regan, 5,599. Kate Forbes, 20,559. Hamza Youssef, 24,336. As no candidate received more than 50% of the votes, Ash Regan, as the candidate who received the least number of first preferences, was eliminated, and the second preference votes in favour of Kate Forbes or Hamza Youssef were given to them. The result after those votes were redistributed was as follows. Kate Forbes, 23,890. Hamza Youssef, 26,032. I therefore declare Hamza Youssef duly elected as the Scottish National Party leader. Let's go back to that leadership election, or more to the point, the thing that triggered it. Why did Nicola Sturgeon decide that she'd had enough being Scotland's popular First Minister? Really, who knows? Just to be clear, I am a supporter of independence. I think I should say that at the beginning, because people really should know which way your bias is working. So I do... I've met Nicola Sturgeon. I'm not a member of the SNP, so I don't know the inner workings of the party. However, the Scots have basically been voting in a party that has got on the tin that it wants to have independence, or at the very least, another referendum, mostly because the first one, which was held in 2014, happened before the Brexit vote, which people might understand was pretty seismic in its impact. In that vote in 2016... The Scots voted overwhelmingly to stay in the European Union, 62%, and every single council area in Scotland voted remain. There wasn't a single council area that voted leave. Right at the border, that changes exactly to leave. So England voted leave, Scotland voted remain. We all ended up getting horsed out of the European Union. And that's changed a lot of people in Scotland, not least because it's pretty undemocratic. Not least because Northern Ireland has now got the best of all worlds, a special deal carved out for them, 
which allows them to have a foot in both camps, which is in fact what everyone had before Brexit. Not least because of all the damage that Brexit is causing that we are simply all having to swallow. So that has made a lot of people think, hang on a minute, we were told the first time around that the only way to stay in the European Union was to stay in the UK, vote no to independence. That was a guarantee. And within two years, that guarantee was bust. So let's have another crack at it. We might change our minds. That's the sort of tilt of Scottish politics for the last six years. We've been in a kind of Groundhog Day where basically Scots have been voting for a party for since 2007 that wants to have um, a second referendum. But the British government has said, now is not the time. No, you can't. And then there was a Supreme Court verdict in November of last year that said the Scottish Parliament also didn't have the power to be able to hold a referendum of its own. So we're stuck betwixt and between. And there's plenty of places around the world that are in this bind where the electorate keep voting in a party that wants to, if you like, wants to talk tough, wants to have more powers for its area and doesn't get to the ne- the, the next mile which is to have a referendum on going it alone, which is where we're stuck. So that's the whole backdrop to Nicola Sturgeon's decision. Earlier this year, she's been First Minister for eight years. Her strategy has been to try and drive through this legal referendum. The Supreme Court essentially told Scotland to get stuffed. And her next tactic was to say, OK, the next general election will be essentially, will make it a de facto referendum, which means really that there would just be one subject for debate in Scotland. Do you want independence or do you not? Because there's no other way of having that referendum. A lot of people within the SNP started to have cold feet about that. And she had boxed herself into a corner. There was an imminent conference coming up that was going to decide whether or not to take that pitch. And she said she stood down because she didn't want her influence and status to stop people essentially being able to say what they felt honestly. And if they felt honestly that this was a bad tactic, then they should be able to say that. I don't know if that quite stacks up as the total answer, but clearly she had been on her feet through the whole COVID pandemic every single day on a COVID briefing in a way that Boris Johnson, if he turned up once a week, it was a bit of a miracle, but every single day. So I think a lot of people think, do you know, you've been in politics since the age of 16 you're 50-something now, you're probably due a bit of time to yourself. So there it was. She was an incredibly popular figure. I would even say south of the border. She really was incredibly visible. And I thought it would have been difficult for somebody to carry the mantle of Alex Salmond in terms of being a voice and a face that was so identified with Scotland in British politics. But Nicola Sturgeon managed to do that very quickly and briefly. Could you tell us the reasons why you think she was actually so successful? She's one of the best communicators I've ever seen in my life. She's a working class woman. So she actually speaks in a no-nonsense, normal kind of way. You, you saw so many of those contrasts during COVID because you would see two sets of briefings going on. The Scottish ones were tremendously down to earth, easily understood, not patronising, and would tend to anticipate reasonable questions the audience would have and wrap them into the whole explanation. The ones that were coming from south of the border had lords, sirs, very stiff people who seemed to be, with Boris Johnson was involved with it, had VIP lanes, had all sorts of different approaches to how to deal with a pandemic. 
And you just looked at the two of them and thought, Nicola Sturgeon is somebody who just manages to reach, cut through so much noise and get straight to the heart of things in a non-pompous way. And I think that was basically her biggest achievement. Can you tell us the runners and riders, again, the vast majority of our audience here aren't going to be that okay with Scottish politics, let alone the personalities. So there were three people that went up for election. Who were they? What respective wings of the party did they represent? The first thing to say is that the, the, there was a strong feeling, and I think it's fair enough, that, that actually the, leader, the, the whole contest, a very sort of short and truncated affair, and there had been a suggestion from one of the candidates in particular, Kate Forbes, that that was to try and disadvantage her. She has just had a baby girl. She lives in the north of Scotland. She's been on maternity leave. She was the finance secretary. That's a pretty much a, the second job to first minister under Nicola Sturgeon. But she'd been off on maternity leave for almost a year. She came in 2020 when the previous holder of that office had been disgraced by some texts he'd sent to a younger guy. So he had been basically turfed out in his ear pretty unexpectedly and Kate Forbes had been drafted in to be the finance secretary to deliver his budget with perhaps just days of preparation. And she was excellent. She really was confident. She dealt with all questions and people suddenly felt, hey, a bit of a star is born, not unlike Nicola herself. Why would anybody not want her as the replacement? It became pretty apparent early in the competition that she has quite socially conservative views and that contrasts extremely with the path that Nicola Sturgeon has taken. Kate Forbes said pretty early on that she's a member of the Free Church, which is a kind of, it's hard to characterise it in ways that everyone would understand, but it's quite a sort of conservative, socially conservative church that, for example, doesn't believe in necessarily in gay marriage. She herself doesn't think gay marriage is right, doesn't think having children out of wedlock is right, doesn't think having an abortion is right. All of those sorts of stances were, for her, quite right-wing. And that has caused a lot of trouble for people because in the United Kingdom, Scotland had been seen, I think, as probably a bit of a progressive outlier. We're sitting with gender recognition reform, which has caused a lot of dilemmas and upsets and arguments here in Scotland. But it's a process that flows from an Equality Act that applies to the whole of the UK. Everyone's going to have to decide about this at some point. And the Scottish Parliament, every members of every single party approved the legislation that went through. So that was a difficulty in the campaign. And then the third candidate was Ash Reagan. She had been a community safety minister, quite a low-ranking job. She came to prominence simply because she resigned over the gender recognition reform that I've just mentioned. And she took a stance that she thought the SNP had basically lost its way that it wasn't democratic enough internally, and it was run almost as a sort of family enterprise. And this is a fair comment, because Sturgeon's husband, Peter Murrell, was the chief executive for, oh, I don't know, more than 10 years. That's too few people making decisions for any party. And it gave the SNP a really concentrated, tiny sort of leadership group into which no one else managed to tread. So there's the three candidates. And in the end, Ash Reagan got 11% of the vote. She was eliminated first. Her votes were transferred. Kate Forbes had got 48% and Humza had got 52%. So it was a very narrow win for Humza Yousaf and Kate Forbes came very close. Does that then set up any 
problems in terms of the direction of the party going forward, the fact that the vote was so close between these two figures? It does, but not nearly as big a set of problems as there would have been if either Kate or Ash had won. There is currently, it's a proportional parliament, the Scottish parliament. All the devolved parliaments use proportional representation in a way that Westminster still seems to find completely impossible to get its head around. But what that means is, there, since devolution, a Scottish parliament in started in 1999, there has only been one government that's been a majority government. You don't get majority governments in proportional parliaments. So currently, the SNP are in a sort of pact with the Greens. And the Greens have are big supporters of trans rights, they're big supporters of moving away from oil and gas. They're big supporters of creating new, very highly protected marine areas around our islands off the West Coast, which might conflict with local fishing. There's lots of things they're keen on, which Kate Forbes was very opposed to. So if she had won, the Greens would have walked out the next day. And that would mean that you would be in a minority government situation having to try and make agreements for every single individual piece of legislation you were trying to pass. So that would have been quite a disruption. And actually, to be fair, she and Ash Reagan were promising disruption. They felt that disruption was needed. And a lot of the SNP membership agreed with them. They felt that the traces needed to be kicked over a bit. If there's any disruption at the moment, and there's a bit, it's nothing compared to what probably would have happened. The question is whether there's useful disruption happening. And we're yet to see Peter Merrill resigned because he was the chief executive, the husband of Nicola Sturgeon, who was asked a simple question about membership numbers during the campaign, actually gave a different number, 100,000, than the real number, which is 72,000. There was a big lot of discussion about where the missing 30,000 people had gone, who they were, why they'd left, and he found his position untenable, so he resigned. That means there's a vacancy right at the top of the party and it could go in a different direction. So all of that is really up for grabs, and that might be just about enough disruption. If it's done well, we should get a new broom and a much more democratic SNP. If it's done badly, and it's one of the old guard, there will be a lot of annoyance. Yusuf tried to, it's one of his first decisions was to demote Kate Forbes from the finance secretary role to rural affairs. Was that just a rough and tumble of politics and the fact that he's now being crowned the first minister of Scotland? Or was there something a little bit more sinister? Was this a way of him being the continuity candidate disrupting the disruptors? I know everybody likes a good old Machiavellian plot, but I think actually this is much more straightforward. During the campaign, it was quite evident that Kate Forbes distinguished herself. She doesn't like this tag, but as an economic conservative. She's a social conservative with her views on gay marriage and so on. But she also believes there should be more of a slowdown on the move away from oil and gas, to have more roads built, to have, if you like, more conventional economic spending and to have more support for business. Humza Yusuf's stance was Nicola Sturgeon's outlook, which is the sooner we get away from oil and gas, the better. The sooner that we take renewables really seriously and build on that, the better. Not so keen just to support business at the expense of everything else. If you like, Humza Yousaf is more of a redistributionist. He wants to absolutely get money straight to the poorest Scots, and that's what he's made his priority. Now, could you see those two together in a government? 
that's the question. So the idea, actually, that your opponent should be able to stay at the top position beside you. And if you think back to all the pairings in politics, of course, there was friction between Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. Maybe I'm picking a bad example there because they did grind away against one another. But um, it's seemed for a country like this, it might have been rather hard and naive to expect that Kate Forbes would be right at that top position with a man that she had disagreed about so viciously at times on his record and on his aspirations for the country. So was it a demotion to be offered rural affairs, which she considered for a day and then turned down? Now, somebody who lives in rural Scotland and also my folk come from even further north in the Highlands, it's a big meaty old brief is rural affairs. And it's any post after finance, I suppose you could say, would be a demotion because it's pretty much the top job. She's decided for whatever reasons that she just doesn't fancy doing this. And you've got to say, she spent five weeks racing around with all the other candidates around, I think, about 50 hustings all over Scotland with her baby and her husband. They actually have also got three. He has three daughters from previous marriages. Wife sadly died in 2014. So Kate is a stepmom, never mind a new mum. And it could be that she's just looked at her work-life balance and thought, do you know something? On balance, it was worth doing this if I was going to get the top job. If I'm going to get any other job, I think maybe I'll just step back. You painted a really vivid picture for us in terms of the politics of Kate and Hamza and actually how different they are in terms of their kind of like social models. Could you expand that for us in terms of giving me an understanding of the Scottish National Party? I am English, here trying to learn, and I'm trying to educate the rest of the world here. First off, tell us where it stands in the traditional Overton window right-left politics, and then where it sits maybe with the other main parties in Scotland, and then how broad is its church? The SNP is a left-of-centre party, and you would have to say, you probably need to stand back one from that and say that Scotland is a left-of-centre country. Scotland has not voted Conservative since 1955. It's worth letting that sink in, <laughs> because there's been movements in England. It's maybe moved mostly. It's voted Conservative. It's had occasional periods of Labour support. Wales has also had a fairly substantial Tory presence. In Scotland, there have been two periods where there were no Conservative MPs at all. The 1997 election that saw Tony Blair come to power saw every single Conservative voted out in Scotland. It was a Tory-free zone. It's a partly a remnant of the industrial background to Scotland. People felt that when Thatcher came in, and privatised many of the big industrial giants like British Steel, British Gas. So much of the heartland of Scotland was built on these nationalised industries. And when people were stuck on the scrap heap, I know this will apply to where you're standing as well, there was a huge pushback against the Conservatives. They have never regained trust in Scotland since then. So the SNP sits within that spectrum and to us, it, many people will complain that it's not radical enough. I think to the average English viewer, it might look like it's fairly left-wing. We, we spend most of the budget here that's allocated for the Scottish Parliament on mitigating the welfare rules that come still from Westminster. That's true of Wales as well now. So, for example, the bedroom tax hasn't existed in Scotland for practically a decade because we spend our money making sure nobody is subject to it. 
that's the one where if you're on benefits and you've got two bedrooms, but there's only you, or there's a couple, even if you're disabled and you need the other room for equipment, your benefits are penalised until you find a smaller house. It doesn't apply in Scotland. Decisions they've taken generally over the last 14 years have been to step up universal access to things that used to be the case when I was young. The old Britain, if you like, there's free prescriptions here. There's free higher education. You don't pay for it. So that's all initiatives that have started under the SNP. Most political parties are in the middle on that. Labour's not so different. The Lib Dems are not so different. Even the Conservatives voted, for example, staying in the EU and have backed some of these social measures because that's where the centre of Scottish politics is. It is to the left. Gotcha. Do you have to believe in Scottish independence to be a member of the SNP? Can you think that maybe we just need more devolution, devolution plus max, whatever the adjective is, and be a member of the SNP? Or is it a, a test of faith? You want Scotland to leave the union if you are a member of the Scottish Nationalist? I think, first of all, it's a Scottish National Party. Sorry to sound picky, but people get a bit hot and bothered about this. Mostly because nationalists around the place and around the rest of Europe have traditionally been right of been fairly yeah. right-wing bunch, actually, yeah. and and also have tended to place an emphasis on distinctions, on cultural distinctions, that there's a different language or there's a different religion. The, the Scots, I think, are fairly unusual in that we are civic nationalists. We obviously speak the same language, mostly, and we have much the same religious beliefs. It's not that the differences are... There's definitely cultural differences, but the biggest difference is simply political. We are a social democratic nation in a conservative state. That's what it really comes down to. That's my perspective of it. And anybody who's a member of the SNP will doubtless believe in independence. Supporters is a different question because there's obviously more supporters of the SNP. They regularly get 40 to 50% of the vote even here when that hasn't actually been the total who want independence. So a lot of people have felt Labour was very complacent, that it took Scotland for granted, that it operated as a branch office of London waiting to be told what to do, what to think, and that the ambition of the Unionist parties was pretty low, really, for Scotland, whereas the SNP, obviously, want Scotland to kick above its size. The first thing Alex Salmond did when he came in was to change the name, actually. It was called the Scottish Executive, which sounds like a kind of bit of a managerial description. And overnight, a new fascia went up with Scottish government on it. So that almost in in one fell swoop said something about the different kind of ambitions that the parties have. And that would probably be the main characteristic difference. We are recording live. This is the podcast where we look at politics from both sides of the Atlantic, the UK and the US. But increasingly now, we do spread our net a little bit further than that. If you are listening to this and a goodly 5,000 of you download every episode but which we put out, if you download the Clubhouse app, you can be here whilst we record one of these episodes live. Quite simply, go to the app store of choice, whether you're on an iPhone or on an Android phone, find the Clubhouse app, download that, and you can be in the audience for a live recording of the podcast. And then you will have the ability to raise your hand and ask a question. Leslie, why so much antipathy towards Brexit on both sides of the border now? The majority of Brits think that a mistake was made in 2016 
And one of the things which you did was really to explain the bind that Scotland finds itself in, that it voted to remain in the EU. But since 1955, Scotland has voted left of centre consistently. With all that in mind, and with the Tory infighting, the Conservative infighting in Westminster, which has led to an unprecedented three prime ministers in the last year, why, with that backdrop, is the support for Scottish independence starting to slip? Right at the moment, it would probably be because after eight years of apparent agreement with Nicola Sturgeon at the helm, and I would say apparent agreement because really behind the scenes, there was a lot of disquiet about different strategies on everything. But there was a phrase that involves the Scottish word wheeshed, which basically means shush. (laughs) So it was wheeshed for Indy. And what that meant was just shut up because if you start rocking the boat, you're not just rocking the boat on a party. You're actually rocking the boat about a a cause, independence. And that's meant eight years of buttoned lips. So really, we've got to a stage now where the gloves have come off during the leadership election. There's been a lot said that can't suddenly be unsaid. And people are now being a lot more forthright. So naturally, people are not used to hearing this from the SNP. And it has caused some of the things said of the new first minister have led people to think, quite naturally, that he ain't no Nicola Sturgeon, and nobody is. So that has rocked the boat a bit, but that support for the SNP that has slightly faltered, support for independence is still where it was before the election, which is still sitting, I'll grant you, sitting beneath 50%. And people would say, do you know, with as much that's gone wrong with Britain over the last however many years, you would expect this to be raging now towards 60 or 70%. You know, that's one way of looking at it. The alternative is, I think, it's actually a bit of a miracle that almost 10 years after a a referendum that people thought would be a flash in the pan and everyone would go back to normal, as in Labour versus Tory, it's amazing that half of Scotland can visualise an independent country despite every paper except one being against it. Pretty much most commentators on a British-wide basis being against it. There's sort of establishment that doesn't rate the idea of independence at all, and yet half the country still thinks it's a goer. So we need to progress, and that really only happens when you've got a target, a date, an election, a campaign. It focuses minds for people to make a decision about which they now think is the safer option. And the first time round, obviously, the status quo looked like the safe option. You would question whether that's true now. And that's probably why we'll never get another officially sanctioned referendum of the kind that David Cameron granted to Scotland in 2014. So that's a problem. We need some sort of event to probably crystallise people's thinking. And if it isn't going to be a referendum, what will it be? So there's the problem about managing to move forward. The Scottish Labour Party has seen a resurgence in popularity under the leadership of Anas Sawa. Is that sustainable? They're currently polling at just under 30%, about 29%, and on track to win some 15 seats in the next general election. Considering that ideologically, economically, they're so similar to the SNP, is this basically a case of If you are left of centre in Scotland and you are pro the union, you vote Labour. If you are anti the union, you vote the SNP. Is there another bit of the triangulation which I may be missing here? 
No, I think you're right enough. I'm sure that both those camps would argue that there's something significant that's being overlooked. The one big significant thing is that that Keir Starmer is not not going saying that he's going to renegotiate Brexit. So Labour will not get you back into European Union. Labour will not get Scotland any better deal than that. So that's a big difference between the two groupings. If you're somebody who thinks the future is about being part of the European Union and it really matters to you, or your children. I must say, I was over in Belfast recently. Last year, for the first time, there were more Irish passports issued in Belfast than British ones. So a lot of people, young folk, just think that the future should be one where you're able to skip around, move around, love where you want, work where you want, the same way as most of the rest of Europe can do. And that can be a big issue for young people who also can't take part in Erasmus, can't take part in the Horizon system, and also for professionals who are just aghast at the decision-making and the self-harm involved in the whole Brexit thing. So that probably is the one big difference between the blocks. But otherwise, I think you're right. I know a former Labour minister in the early days of the Scottish devolved parliament who told me recently he has three sons and they all support independence. And he said, I I don't. And the thing is, our politics in the family are not different. It's that they've given up waiting, want to see change in their lifetimes, whereas I'm still hoping that the UK will work. And that's the big difference, is whether you're confident that if Keir Starmer wins, it's more than a flash in the pan. Because those of us who are old enough have seen a lot of flashes in the pan and a default re-emerge very quickly, which is an isolationist country that hasn't got over the loss of empire, won't modernise, is stuck with archaic practice, which it thinks is distinctive, and is dragging its knuckles along in a judgmental way that basically harms its citizens. And most of Scotland just doesn't want to be there. So you're going to wait, you're going to not wait. That's really the question. The First Minister of Scotland is a Muslim, he's relatively young. How has that played out in Scottish politics? Is this a case of, look how colourblind, how inclusive Scotland is? Is this a case of people saying, we, we are proud of this, played out? I think actually there's, it's been quite surprising how much people have gone, well, that's quite good really. I've not heard very much racist or undermining or any negativity on that front. You'd have to say that it's probably difficult for people to express any kind of what would be racist or is towards Hamza Yusuf. That's just politically a dead end. It's not to say that privately people might not have other views. There was even a picture when he entered the official residence of the First Minister, Butte House, in Charlotte Square in Edinburgh, after Nicola Sturgeon had the leaving van and moved all her stuff out the previous week. One of the first things he did was a prayer session, which was photographed. And I think that gave people a lot of, whoa, that's different, because we've seen nobody in that room for eight years except Nicola Sturgeon. It's a very different face of Scotland, but I don't think there's actually, I'm not really hearing very much worry on that guard. And I suppose the point about Humza is he embodies respect for minorities. It's not an abstract argument. It's like he is one. And he's used that very strongly in attacks on a Hindu colleague in the shape of Rishi Sunak, pushing for the kind of migration policy that a lot of Scots feel incredibly uncomfortable about. So 
right now, I don't think there's very much pushback on on that front at all. Last couple of questions from me, and then we do have a couple of people up on stage. We have Mr. B and Frank to fire some questions to you. Let's put independence and wanted independence. Let's push that all completely to one side. What is the first thing in Umza's intro? It's probably making a decision about the Gender Recognition Reform Act, because this is the one that had years of uh, consultation, uh, lots of argument. This is the one that allows people to change their gender identity without needing a doctor's certificate and without waiting for years and at the age of 16. And all those things have been controversial, but in the end, the parliament passed it by a two-thirds majority, then uh, prompted the UK government to say that it would use a hitherto unused part of the Devolution Act, that's a Section 35 order, to simply stop that legislation. Now, that's a toughie because naturally nobody really likes the idea that London swings in when it feels like it and just strikes down a piece of legislation that is perfectly within the competence of the Scottish Parliament and which had that level of agreement. But the wider issue about women's rights versus trans rights is a fairly incendiary one everywhere that it's being discussed. And there's a lot of feminists left the SNP over its advocacy of trans rights. So there would be some people who'd say, do you know something? If it takes Westminster swinging in to get this legislation stopped, so be it. There's also a minor question as to whether legally there would be success in challenging the Westminster efforts on this front. And if you were to go in and have another defeat, it might look weak, given that the Supreme Court verdict went the wrong way from the Scottish government's view just in November. On the other hand, if you're going to let Westminster come and just strike down bits of completely competent legislation when it feels like it, What's the point? What are we doing here? Just having a wee pretendy parliament and managing to pass legislation as long as it doesn't look like an opportunistic reason for Westminster to swing in and put the Scots in their place. So that's a tough one. And he's got to make that decision, I think, within three weeks. And what about the NHS? There are some currently, what, some 600,000 people on a waiting list and A&E departments are regularly full in Scotland. Is that seen as one of the burning issues in Scottish politics at the moment? It is, absolutely. And like almost every other part of the United Kingdom, that one is a very tricky one to unpick. I'm not, I personally speaking, have got an autoimmune condition that means I need monthly blood checks and all the rest of it. I have had nothing but excellent service through from the NHS in Scotland and no no delays. That's just okay. That's one anecdote. It doesn't can't be set against statistics. But if you are looking at statistics, even though they're bad in Scotland, they're still better than every other part of the NHS in the United Kingdom. So he certainly has to do something about particularly staff recruitment. And that's something his claim is that Scotland is the only area that didn't have strikes because negotiated settlements were achieved with all the workforce in the NHS. That in itself will probably not mean that it's you're able to quickly get the numbers of staff that are needed to begin to make beds viable. There's also that problem everyone's struggling with, which is how to get social care working so that you get folk who don't need to be in hospital into social care. And we have proved not much better at managing to do that than the rest of the United Kingdom. That's the big one. There's a care bill on the go at the moment, which was an attempt to try to solve that by setting a national care service up in Scotland. 
But a lot of people didn't like how centrally controlled it was. They wanted it properly locally controlled. And now I think Coombs has put it up a pause on that to reconsider it, as many people wanted it to be reconsidered. So if that comes forward again with a better local control, that might be a way forward, but it ain't going to be quick. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Last question from me, then I'm going to throw this out to our guests who have joined us on stage. When you travelled, let's say, Liverpool or London, does it feel like you're in an, another country? Yes. And it didn't. As I say, I went to university in Oxford. I went to college in Cardiff. I worked for the BBC in London. I can't remember quite where else I was. I worked in Manchester for a while, actually, for Channel 4. There was minor differences, but not substantial. But I must say, it does feel quite different now. The politics, watching the politics of Westminster looks like another country. It doesn't map onto the kind of issues or divisions that people find important here. The language people use sounds like something out of upstairs, downstairs. And the Brexit thing has crystallised a difference because it feels like England took a strange self-harming decision that I think a lot of people now regret, but it pulled us away from a feeling of belonging, I think, allied to which Scotland wants, generally speaking, public ownership and kind of a modern economy, a modern society. It just doesn't feel that's actually what people want south of the border, even though I'd have to say a lot of opinion polls do suggest that the public are still quite keen on public ownership, but they just keep returning parties that aren't. Yeah, it does feel quite different. Utterly last question from me <laughs> on this, because I'm really interested in this question. And back when I re- literally started the podcast was 2014. Not even literally. I hate when people say literally and they mean actually. bear <laughs> 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 of mine. And to find myself saying it, it is terrible. So the podcast started in 2014. And I think it was like episode seven or nine. It was before we got to episode 10. It was on the run up to Scottish independence. And I spoke to a friend of mine. More, more support. She actually she was somebody who I knew, who lived in London, who was Scottish, great singer. And she had moved back 
to, I think, Edinburgh. She'd been living in Edinburgh for about 10 years. And I called her onto the show. She came on. And I said, when you go to Manchester, does it feel like a foreign country? She was so pro-Scottish independence. And she said, no. And that gave her, gave her real pause for thought. So with that in mind, and you have answered that question, but moving on to my... my... Although, can I just say that oh. actually a lot has happened in seven years. I think in 2014, it's quite possible that these feelings were not as pronounced as they started to be after Brexit, after Boris, after COVID, after fast lanes, after crony contracts, after Suella Braverman, after the boats business. Every single one of those is like a blow to any conception of a generous United Kingdom. And that's the bit that is hard to take. And I suppose really I'm talking about walking down a British, and I'm saying British deliberately, High Street and seeing a WH Smith's, seeing a Boots. I travel a lot and make, and possibly too much, and I've got to look at my carbon footprint. When I go to Edinburgh, it's beautiful. It's incredibly familiar. And I think there is something about culture, architecture, away from contemporary politics. And so here's my last question. I'm going to throw this out to Mr. B, Frank, Roland and Cathy. If England, because it is England, England is a troublesome member of the United Kingdom. As somebody who is very English of Jamaican parentage, I can admit that. We are the anomaly. But let's say that we were to vote in two left of centre, i.e. Labour administrations. And if you're going to put your money on who's going to win the next election, you say the Labour Party. And let's say that first administration just tamps everything down. And then running in the second for the second election, they say, you know what, we're going to re-nationalise some stuff the trains, etc. We do, we are a social democratic party with a social democratic platform. Do you think that might take some of the wind out of Scottish independence? Yes, it might. There you go. There's an answer. The union isn't, isn't dead yet. Mr B, over to you, sir. You waited patiently to ask a question. What is your question to Leslie? Hi, Leslie. Thanks very much for having us here. Ben, Scottish independence didn't get the vote of people over in Scotland in 2014. Alex Salmon stepped down and it seems that Sturgeon was basically emerging to somehow rearrange the first face of SMP in their duty politics all over again and distancing himself from the idea of independence and rather focusing on self Scottish public and so the problems like teenage pregnancy, drug and alcohol problems and other things in Scotland. Quickly after that, the Brexit seemed to have said another opportunity to SMP to to go for a second referendum. And it took her such a long time to convince herself that there is no sufficient support for that. Is it the does the emergence of Hamza Youssef send the message that it has been long overdue with SMP? Looking at the how non-receptive of uh, Scotland, the European Union is as a separate country, with the problems with the defence side and the currency side, and the better than me, has it been overdue for the SMP to take the decision? 
and drop the idea, drop the idea of another referendum or focus on the Scottish problems, particularly on the economy and the other issues of the Scotland as a... No. <laughs> really, when you look at... Let's just take an example here, energy. We're all sitting with an energy crisis. It's a bad situation. It's a crazy situation because Britain is awash with renewable energy, most of it in Scotland. For Scots, it's utterly crazy. We have the highest rates of fuel poverty in the United Kingdom. We are paying most for standing charges to get electricity. Our producers, who are producing the most renewable energy from hydro, wind, etc., are having to pay to join the grid much higher rates than anywhere else in the United Kingdom. And yet we are the people who are basically producing the renewables for Britain. So how does that work? Now, if you were to say, let's discuss how we deal with that bread and butter issue about energy prices. In Scotland, it doesn't take you long before you bump into the fact that energy is a reserve power to Westminster. And we have islands here which have the best wind and tidal energy resource in Northern Europe, which are not even connected to the grid because that decision is waiting for a British government to okay that investment. So it's not either or here. And I realise it feels like that. It feels like you either do the day job or you look to this big, long, abstract looking political ambition. But for most people here, we've spent years drilling down into the details of how you run a country that, in a way that no one else in the United Kingdom has done because of that referendum. And people know that we are basically being diddled on the energy front and we would like the constancy of investment that would allow us to get on and actually produce tidal energy for the world, actually, because we have that good a resource. But with the, the funding comes and goes, one day the British government will decide perhaps that it will allow onshore wind. Right now, it's crazy. We've got an energy and climate crisis, but the concerns of people not wanting turbines in their backyard are still more important in England than actually getting on with decarbonising our energy supply. So there's a difference that can only be resolved with independence. And that's why the two strands will keep walking forward together here. Thank you for those questions. Mr. B. Frank, over to you, sir. Yeah, good, good evening, Royfeld. Good evening. Leslie here from Berlin, Germany, where Queen Charles has just left the city after a three-day visit. And six years ago, I was hopeful that the United Kingdom would vote remain. And I was surprised, I have to say, how the things actually went in the long run. But I'm trying to understand the possibilities of Scotland. If we just would imagine that that the departure from the United Kingdom would actually take place and, and how that then could go the extension to, to, to the European Union. Because as I understand, or as it's just a historical fact, Scotland has been part of the whole protocol within the European Union. And so they do understand on an institutional level, they do understand how the things go. So so institutionally, it seems pretty easy to get into the European Union. But geographically, that is where my question is. I am interested in your take on how would you imagine the geographical approach for European Union integration, if, that, if any of that happened. I'm wondering about this question for quite some time, so I'm, so I'm thankful that you're on the program. Yeah. Yeah, how does Finland do it? 
Finland is sitting with a complete Baltic Sea, Gulf of Bosnia gap. And until Estonia also joined the European Union, there was actually a bit of the Soviet Union between Finland and the EU. How does Sweden do it? I'm sorry to say, when you're based in the centre of Europe, not surprisingly, you're also looking at similar sized large countries that are fairly central to Europe. But here on the kind of periphery, if you like, we are actually not as far flung as many other important players. Ireland has been a game changer, actually. They now have the highest GDP growth in the European Union. They've managed to rebound from the difficulties caused by Brexit to have all sorts of new connections. I think there's 32 new connections made with the mainland of Europe that allow movement that not to go through England en route. And currently, I mean, take the port of Rosslare in Ireland. There's all sorts of ports on the mainland of, of Europe, including Dunkirk, who are falling over themselves trying to get themselves to be the connection with Ireland because they've realised, they've regarded it, they've underestimated it as a market. If you live smack bang central, sure, we look small, we look peripheral. Actually, in the great scheme of things, Scotland is no more remote than Finland, which was, about five years ago, the most productive of the 92 regions in the EU. I'm not critical of that, I have to say. It would be very welcoming. So I was just more curious about how would it be Edinburgh or Glasgow or something to that extent, if you have a real precise understanding of where the advantages would lay. So that was just a question out of curiosity, but I know, thanks for... Sure. Listen, I wasn't trying to bite your head off. It's just, <laughs> we do get this all the time, that we're, and it's something that's internalised by Scots, because within Britain, we seem to be northern and remote. But I run a policy group called Nordic Horizons. I've made five films that are on my website, if you want to have a wee look at them, about Iceland, Norway, the Faroes, Estonia. There's another one I've forgotten. And those are genuinely remote countries that don't think of themselves as remote. So it's quite important in your head to be the centre of your own world, even if you are sitting on what seems to be a periphery, because it allows you to concentrate on what you've got. When you constantly are thinking of yourself as remote from the seat of power and as without something, you tend to be behave that way. And it's not a powerful way or an empowered way to proceed. So, yeah, we are learning to not to see ourselves as remote, but just at the centre of where we need to be. Let's I, I, just I, I, one, one second there, Frank. Also, Frank, I'll let you ask another question, but we do need to be mindful that Roland and Kathy are here. We are literally on the hour. So I'll quickly put in my supplemental question. Then, Frank, one quick rebuttal from you. Then we'll move on to Ro Roland and Kathy. Let's say Scotland achieves independence. How are you going to get past Spain vetoing it? Because it's looking at the same issue with Catalonia. I was actually invited to Catalonia to do a debate by BBC World the day before the Catalan Declaration of Independence. And in fact, the, one of their leading constitutional lawyers came over to me at the end of it and said, you should realise we don't really have a problem with you guys anymore. And this has actually been something that's been substantiated by the Spanish government themselves. The problem they have would be with a Declaration of Independence that didn't go through a lawful referendum. And that's the bit that they don't want to see replicated with Catalonia. And that, again is a difficulty for Scotland because we're being told in this voluntary union and this union of equals that there is no lawful way out. But this is Hotel California. So that can stand for as long as the opinion polls are sitting around 45 to 50%. Once they get to 60%, you know, that's really hard to wash. So the Spanish veto doesn't kick in 
if there's a lawful referendum. And that's one reason that the British government won't give one. Gotcha. All right, Frank, I'll ask your rebuttal, then we'll move on to Roland, Cathy, then Paula has just come on stage, and then we'll wrap the room up. Just as a quick personal reference, I had a music business with a partner in the United States and in in Glasgow, actually, and so I'm not thinking in these terms of periphery of Scotland. I just wanted to, as a personal mm-hmm. note, I just want to say that it would be appreciative of any of the countries in the United Kingdom to rejoin the EU. So thank you. That's grand. Roland, what is your question, sir? Roy Phil, thank you very much. Hi, Leslie. I have two questions. One that came up from listening to you, Leslie, which is, given the context that you have painted and the changes that have happened in the Scottish government, does that give Labour a better position of winning the next general election and having more support in Scotland? On that one, it might do. It can't be denied. However, there's a couple of points. One is that currently the... It looks as if votes are just moving between the Conservatives and Labour in Scotland. People who are supportive of the union really wait to see which party looks like the most powerful party within the UK, and then they switch to vote for them. So at the moment, Labour has really been taking votes off the Conservatives here, not off the SNP. And it needs to take, it needs to take people like me, I used to be a Labour voter, it needs to take people like me and persuade them that a better bet for me is to hope that they can make the big changes necessary to undo 40 years of privatisation south of the border that has extended across the whole of the UK. That ain't going to be an easy argument to win here. So they're not home and dry by any means yet. Second point, there has only been four times since 1918 that Scottish votes have determined who wins in Downing Street. So the idea, especially if the polls are looking as they are at the moment, And I'll quite grant you that it's very likely the Tories will have a bit more of a resurgence when we come closer to the polls. But still, it looks very much as if it's not necessary for Scots to vote Labour for there to be a Labour UK government, which then does allow, for example, the possibility that the SNP could actually be the second largest party in the UK. That's maybe not as likely as it was at the time that Liz Truss blew up the economy, but the polls were predicting that possible outcome. Now, for a lot of Scots, that's a pretty good scenario because it gets the maximum out for Scotland and it keeps Labour real. So any tendency that Keir Starmer has, I'm sorry to be blunt in case you like the Union Jack, but to wrap himself in the flag and sound like a kind of slightly pinker version of Rishi Sunak, that becomes less with a large SNP contingent so all those things are saying, suggesting it's not a walk in the park for Labour in Scotland yet. Cathy, and then Paula, and then we'll close the room. Cathy. Thank you, Royfield. And thank you, Leslie. You've been very informative and eloquent. I'm wondering how big the self-ID issue is in Scotland. I'm a feminist. I operate in feminist circles. To us, it's important. I'm wondering if this Scottish kind of foray head first into it. How big a deal do you think it is in Scotland? I'm finding it quite hard to know that. It looked like it was a massive deal and I'm a feminist. There's plenty of people who have gone in a very different direction. I also do find it impossible to not call a woman. I'm stuck there with that and that might just reflect my generation. I know that my children have got no problem at all and are actually very much more fluid in their ideas about everything, including gender identity, than older generations. 
But the point is that the Equality Act 2010, I think, does begin to open doors for legal challenge to trans people who feel that they cannot express their human rights. And there's going to have to be some recognition. The UK government had a bill on the stocks ready to go until they saw the difficulties that the Scots were getting into and it just quietly disappeared. So it'll still have to be something that everybody tries to consider. And here's the thing. Strangely, the the last opinion poll had about 57% support for the Gender Recognition Act in Reform Act in Scotland. If you looked at under 35s, it was 70% support. If you looked at women, it was 63% support. The people who really don't like it are older white men. That's fine. They're entitled. But I suspect it's there's also been there's the problem that about where that particular Isla Bryson, that prisoner, was housed, just raised so many absurdities. And yet, actually, it happened without the Gender Reform Act being in place because it got stuck by that Section 35 challenge. So that's just practice that was a mistake by the prison service. And yet, it's actually also a problem south of the border about where you house prisoners who say that they have now transitioned. So it's not an easy one to figure, just it isn't easy. But I think people are going to have to try to come to grips with it because the next generation will. Thank you, Leslie. I have one quick follow-up question. You're obviously a, an informed woman, but proudly Scottish. Are you gutted that Glasgow did not get Eurovision? Yes. <laughs> to be blocked. When you think about the incredible bands that could have been opening that gig in Glasgow, and actually we have got huge arenas and had used them to house COP26 just the year before last. That all went off reasonably well. So it did feel like that would have been an incredible thing. But there's an awful lot of common cause between all the music cities of the West Coast of Britain, if you like. So between Glasgow and Liverpool, I don't think people were too upset that Liverpool got it. But yeah, for sure, that would have been a lovely one to have here. Uh, no, Leslie, I was as a proud Brummie and we just hosted the Commonwealth Games. You can't get a more diverse... <laughs> there is not a more diverse city in the United Kingdom than Birmingham. Majority minority. This is the face of the United Kingdom. It should have come to Birmingham. God damn it. We had not only musical youth, <laughs> but UB40 and Duran, Duran and Black Sabbath. It goes on and on. We were robbed. Utterly robbed. Fowler, you have the honour, the distinction of being our last person to ask a question. Make sure it's a good one. Thank you very much. It's been a really interesting conversation and a good afternoon, everybody. Leslie, I just wanted to ask you a question. I lived in Scotland on and off 25 years. I'm Italian, actually. But I lived my adult life in the northeast of Scotland, in Aberdeen, and uh, I was recently, about a month ago, to I went back to Scotland to visit my daughter, who actually lives in Edinburgh at the moment. But I happened to go and visit a friend in Aberdeen, and uh, I discovered a ghost town. The entire economy of the northeast is in shambles. Aberdeen has not recovered from the oil crisis back in the early, I think it was 1917, 1918. And how do you see the future of the Northeast? It's still hanging on. It's still booming because it's the capital. Glasgow is a different story. But the Northeast, I found a really financial situation for many people. How do you see the future of that part of Scotland? 
Funnily enough, I was in Aberdeen three days ago for a BBC programme about the election and everything. And one of the questions that was asked was about the very miserable state of the main street through Aberdeen called Union Street. Afterwards, I met some friends who live in Aberdeen and they said, yeah, okay, there are problems with every main street in every city of Britain. But actually, behind the scenes, what's beginning to be quite vibrant are just some of the, the smaller areas that probably don't cost as much to rent shops. These main streets have got really sky-high rates. The big department stores that we might have grown up with, maybe a thing of the past, online shopping, all of that. We've got to change city centres so they become cultural centres again. And that's something that actually Aberdeen is fairly well-placed to do, although maybe not on stuff that you and I or know much about. So, for example, grime music. I don't know if you know anything about it. I don't. But it's a massive part of the scene in Aberdeen and it's got a murals kind of exhibition every year where international mural artists are brought in to do massive murals on the sides of buildings. I appreciate that's not the same as oil jobs. But the thing is, you've got to get to a stage where the Northeast, okay, was built on many things. I'm old enough to remember before the oil almost, and it was a large trawler centre. It was a port before it was an oil centre. It'll be the centre of renewables again. It could be the centre for carbon capture, except it gets passed over for that every time by the Westminster government, I'd have to say. But the sooner somebody makes a concerted decision to get ahead of the curve and not wait to be basically struggling with stranded assets, which is what oil and gas will be, the sooner you get vibrancy returning. And that needs investment. That needs constancy. That needs a political will. And that ain't coming from Westminster. Yes, I totally agree. And do you think, this is my second question, do you think that actually that the government in, in Edinburgh is going to, in Holyrood, is actually going to implement this and help this come in the central for the Northeast? I've written a column basically saying Scotland needs to set up a national energy company. The Welsh have got ahead of us now. They're trying to do it. The difficulty is that both the Welsh and the Scottish government have fewer borrowing powers than London transport. These are described as the uh, Scottish Parliament is described by Westminster as the world's most powerfully devolved parliament. That is a nonsense because the borrowing powers are so restricted. But looking at the difficulties is not good enough. There's ways around everything. And even if it has to start small, it has to start. So we have to get a national energy company that's in there developing renewables in a very different way from the way that oil and gas were developed simply to finance flogging off the, the family silver by Margaret Thatcher for nothing. When across the North Sea, Norway has built up the world's largest sovereign wealth fund for future generations of Norway, we're too late for that now, but we can try to make a different investment for renewables. And that means the Scottish government, even with its hands tied behind its back, needs to get going now. Thank you, Leslie, for being with us and explaining the intricacies and the four-dimensional chess, which is Scottish <laughs> politics, and how it relates to the United Kingdom. Leslie, people want to follow you on social media, maybe look at your website. How can they get hold of that information? With a surname Riddick, you don't find yourself with too many difficulties. It's just a question of how to spell it, which is R-I-D-O-C-H. So if you look for me, I'm on Twitter as at Leslie Riddick. I've got a website that has the films that I've done, the five books that I've written, 
and every column that I produce, there's two a week, so you can knock yourself out with all fixed Scottish and Nordic at lesliriddick.com. Thank you for that, Leslie. And we give our unreserved congratulations to Scotland's First Minister, Hamza Youssef, and wish him all the best in steering a course for the Scottish nation. I must admit, in conclusion, personally, I can only hope that Scotland remains an integral part of the United Kingdom. Moreover, Scotland has played an integral and vital part in shaping the history and the identity of the UK. And my white forebears were actually Scottish. I am five percent a stop <laughs> contribution to the arts and science and politics are immeasurable as people of scotland are resilient and innovative and proud and i think they add to the unique flavor of the rich tapestry that is the uk so on a personal level i hope that that bond isn't broken but that is not a decision for the english the welsh or the northern irish to make it's uh, only a decision that the scottish people can make and on that note we bid you how do i say goodbye in scots liz well if you wanted to use scottish gaelic you could say aishava aishava there you go everyone aishava there you go don't forget folks left of center politics is right if thinking politics but we don't demonize our right-leaning brothers and sisters we try and win them over with the strength of our argument because the civic space is a space that all democracies need, where people can come together and disagree violently, rhetorically, but still walk away uh, respecting each other. That's incredibly important. And on that note, that's been the end of your Mid-Atlantic. Take care, look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.